past three weeks um, called Conversations. We have talked about God, we've talked about man, and we've talked about science. And today we're going to talk about politics as it's the uh, right season, too, as we have the vote coming up in uh, a week or so here, um, two Tuesdays from now. Um, so it's a pretty pretty big, uh, big concept, and we're going to be going through how we can relate to politics, how culture relates to it, and how uh, we should glorify God, um, just knowing how to react to it. Um, so uh, this morning we'll have Michael preaching, um, so I just want to say a quick prayer to open our hearts up to what he has to say. Lord God, I just thank you so much uh, for you and you being in everything, for you being in science, for you being in politics, for you being in creation. Uh, just everything, Lord, is yours, and you own everything, Lord, and, and we thank you that you're a good God and that you're sovereign over everything, Lord. So please be with us this morning. I pray that you would open our hearts. Holy Spirit, just be with us. Help us to um, just absorb and to take in what you would have to say uh, through Michael this morning, Lord. I pray that you would give Michael the words to say and that we'd be honoring and glorifying to you this morning in our thoughts and our actions, Lord. So I thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Zach. Uh, Welcome to Genesis. I'll add my welcome. My name is Michael. I serve here as a pastor and uh, thankful that you came today. Um, and as Zach mentioned, we are uh, in the midst of, uh, this is our fourth week in a series called Conversations. We looked at God. We looked at uh, man. Uh, last week uh, was a great week. We looked at uh, science. And I know for me personally, one of the things that I was really encouraged by as we looked uh, at science was uh, I feel like my sense of awe, my sense of worship actually is growing in light of all that we learned about, all that I learned about especially, uh, in terms of not just who God is, but how God created and fashioned and formed uh, the world in which we live. So uh, this morning, uh, we're diving into a, a very non-controversial topic uh, such as politics. Um, so that was meant to be a joke. Thank you can see we're starting off strong here. That's good. Uh, excited to talk about politics. And I know for some, uh, I got the, the, the questions like, wow, I can't believe you're talking about politics in church. Like, why on earth would you talk about politics in church? And I'm like, well, scripture is not silent about politics and politicians and government. So I'm not sure why we as the church would be silent on this issue. Uh, it may be a controversial issue in the culture that we live in. Uh, but God's got uh, thoughts and plans and, and design and purpose and intentions with politics and politicians and government. So uh, that's where we're headed this morning. Uh, in many ways, the whole heart behind the conversation series is just simply that we would be okay to be challenged. We would be okay to think deeply and uh, to begin to question, what do I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? How did I come to believe what I believe? And is what I believe actually even right? Uh, and so now for week number four, uh, I want to challenge you or encourage you uh, to really consider uh, what you believe uh, as it relates to politics. Now, I wanted to, similar to what I did last week, uh, I wanted to open up with um, some observations, uh, maybe some challenges uh, along the way. Uh, and I wanted to also give uh, a, a bit of a, a disclaimer or maybe even a qualifier. So I'm going to give you eight. Now, this might seem like a lot for just an introduction, but I wanted to give eight observations uh, before we even start the conversation, as it were, on politics. And I'll go through these pretty quickly, but encourage you to write these down. Number one observation would just be simply this. Politics, it's a huge conversation. It is absolutely a huge conversation to be had. 
there are issues, and then there are issues within those issues, and then there are sub-issues within those issues within those issues. So there is so much that could be said uh, as it relates to politics because it's just a huge field. My aim this morning, my heart this morning, is clearly in the next 40 minutes, I cannot cover everything that could be covered as it relates to politics, but let's look at Scripture. What does the Bible have to say about politics? What does the Bible have to say about politicians and governments and how we're not only to think about these things, but relate to these things as well? That would be number one. Number two would be this. Politics is a charged conversation, meaning you've, got, you've already got ideas. You've already got thoughts as it relates to politics. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this, but in my humble view, there's really two camps. There's not many people who kind of live in the middle ground. There's two camps, and camp A, camp one, is the people who just don't care. Politics is so messy, so messed up, it's too big, it's too large, it's so out of control. I don't even know how to think about it, and I've gotten to the point where I don't even care. I'm tired of seeing the ads, I'm tired of seeing these crazy debates, I'm, it's just mind-boggling, and I'm shutting down, and I just don't, I don't care anymore. And it's not that you don't care about our country and care about politics, but you've, be, you've grown kind of indifferent towards it because it's just too big to, get, to, to wrap your mind around. And so there's that camp of just, I'm done, I'm, I'm checked out. And then you've got the other camp of people, you just mention the P word, politics, and like veins like start popping out in the neck. And like the face like just turns this, this reddish color. And it's like, dang, what did I say? Did I, like, did I kick you or what happened? Like, what's going on that you have this such strong emotional reaction to politics? And I'm sure you've had conversations or been around conversations where it's, being, it's talked about and you're just watching from a distance. You're like, man, calm down. Like, I'm not attacking you. Like, there's two camps. One, I've checked out. I'm kind of indifferent now. And then one that is like, I'm so angry and frustrated and it's so intense. What I want to present or talk about, is there a place in the middle? Is there a place where we're not checking out, we're actually very engaged, but we're not so emotionally engaged where we're getting angry and screaming and yelling and fighting? Number three would be this, politics is bigger than you. That's another way of saying you don't know everything that there is to know about politics. None of us do. Now, I've met plenty of people who are like, well, I read all the blogs. I, I listen to all the talk radio. I listen to all the political TV shows and commentaries. You may listen to all that stuff. You may be the most well-read person out there. But let me just tell you, you don't know everything that there is to know because this is such a huge conversation, as I mentioned, and there are so many intricacies within this conversation. So because you don't know everything, let's not act like you do. Let's approach this conversation with an incredible sense of humility to say, I know some things, but I don't know all things, and so let's approach it with humility of I'm willing to learn, specifically willing to learn actually what God has to say about politics. Number four, politics. Uh, I think you would agree with this one. Sensitive topic. Incredibly sensitive topic. 
partly because we already have ideas and opinions and we've already made conclusions of this guy or this guy or this woman or, or that woman. And I want to encourage you today. It may be a sensitive topic. I am not going to go out of my way to offend you. But if you hear something that irks you, that bothers you, if you hear something that you even disagree with, stick with it. Stick with it. Don't mentally check out. Don't emotionally check out. Don't be like, well, silly pastor, what do you know? Just keep reading your Bible and I'll stay up to date on current events. Don't check out of the conversation because that's what happens in our culture is people get so intense and so emotionally wired and geared and as, as soon as they hear something they don't like, they just shut down and there's no more conversation to be had. So because it is a sensitive topic, um, let's stick together on this. Let's stick together. Number five, uh, and this is something that just in a lot of the study and research that I've been doing really over the past few months gearing up for this series, uh, this was a, a new thing that I learned, and I, I agree with it and think it's helpful. Politics are not directive, but reflective. Say that again. Politics are not directive, but reflective, meaning the political arena is the place where policies are made that often reflect the values of our culture. So in many ways, that's just another way of saying what's happening in the political realm, in the political arena, is just a reflection of what's ultimately happening in our culture. Uh, sociologist, author, theologian, uh, Vern Polythress says this, Bible-believing Christians have not achieved much in politics because they have not devoted themselves to the larger arena of cultural conflict. Politics mostly mostly follows culture rather than leading it. A temporary victory in the voting booth does not reverse a downward moral trend driven by cultural gatekeepers in news media, entertainment, art, and education. Politics is not a cure-all. This is not to say that we don't care about politics. It is to say we care deeply about this because we want to care about what God cares about, and God clearly cares about this. But what we care about is not getting this person elected and this person unelected, as it were. What we care about is the heart. And I, I agree with this, and I don't know if you do, but I would challenge you to at least consider it. If you can see the heart of man changed, as a man, man's heart changes towards the things of God, the things that he values begins to change. And what we need is not this affiliation or that affiliation or this person or that person, what we as Christians need is to engage the heart because as the heart is engaged with the gospel, values will begin uh, to change. Christianity in America is not challenging the habits of the heart and the habits of the mind that dominate American culture. Again, another theologian, uh, sociologist. Christianity in America is not challenging the habits of the heart and the habits of the mind that dominate. And his point in this article is simply, as we begin to do that, we will begin to see a change, not in politics, but in our culture, in the moral standards of our culture. And again, not to requote this whole thing, uh, but politics often is reflecting what the culture values. So number six, politics and politicians cannot save. That might not be news to you, 
but it's worth repeating as an observation because a lot of people that I encounter, if we could just get this person in, they would fix everything. If I could just get this, this individual elected to office, president, vice president, governor, senators, mayors, if I could just get my guy in, well, my guy would make everything better. There is not one politician that can save. So number six observation, politics, politicians cannot save, meaning our world is broken, our world is fallen, and no political structure, no, no politician will be able to mend that or fix that. Uh, D.L. Moody, who's at least a hero of mine, uh, was a bit pessimistic as it related towards politics uh, and was once asked, how do you feel about politics? And can politics make a difference? Can politics save? And this was his response. I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said to me, Moody, save all you can. And I, when I read that uh, as part of an interview, I was just cut to the heart that if you are a Christian, we have Jesus, and Jesus is the one who saves. And the message that we're promoting and the message that we are committed to is simply Christ, Christ and his, and his gospel. Politics, politicians don't save. Number seven, two more observations. Uh, politics cannot accomplish the mission of the church. So, meaning the church is not to sit idly back in hopes that our government will do for us what Jesus clearly told us to do. I'm thankful that we have a government that seeks to do the best that they can, as flawed as it might be, to do the best that they can to come alongside uh, those who are helpless, those who are fatherless, and the widows, and those who are down and out. Do they do it perfectly? No. I'm thankful that they try. But that's not their job. That's my job. And if you're a Christian, that's your job. And if you're thinking that it's the government's job to accomplish what the mission of the church is, you're wrong. Jesus told me, Jesus told you, Jesus told the church, we are to love, we are to serve, we are to give, we are to be generous, we are the ones to care for the widows and the orphans and the fatherless and those who no one else cares for. That's not our government's job. That's my job. That's your job as the church. We do that. So politics cannot accomplish the mission of the church. All right, number eight. This one, I'm glad you're sitting for, because I feel like it just might be so shocking to you. Number eight, the big one. Jesus is not a Republican. Hang on, I'm not done. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not an independent. He's not a conservative. He's not a liberal. He's not a left wing. He's not a right wing. That may be shocking to you, but I think what most might be most shocking and Hang on. He's not even an American. Okay? Jesus is not politically affiliated with Americans, with the, with the Republicans or the Democrats or all the other categories that I mentioned. I think a lot of Christians approach politics, well, well clearly Jesus is a Republican. Clearly Jesus is pro-American. Jesus is... You know what Jesus is most concerned about? His glory, his name, his fame, his renown, his kingdom. 
There's a great story in, um, in Joshua, and Joshua is uh, taken over for Moses, and Joshua is now the leader of uh, the nation of Israel. And he's getting ready to do battle, and the night before battle, uh, the Lord, God, appears to Joshua. And it says in Joshua 5, 13, 14, this is the, um, the interaction. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. One would think, well, oh, Joshua, I'm totally with you. I'm so against them. I'm, I'm, I'm on your team. He's not on your team. He's not on the Republican team. He's not on the... Jesus is on his own team. And Jesus' team is about Jesus. His glory, his fame, his renown, his kingdom. So I realize that that might not be news to you, but I feel like as we even have this political conversation... Please do not start from the posture of the position that Jesus is affiliated with one political party over another political party. Jesus is about Jesus. Now, my disclaimer or my qualifier, uh, the one thing that I will share with you is this. I will not tell you who to vote for, nor will I publicly support one candidate or another from this platform, from this chair, as it were. Actually, back in uh, 1954, uh, 1954, Senator uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was running for Senate at the time, and there was a nonprofit organization that was publicly opposing his candidacy to be senator. And so when Senator Lyndon B. Johnson actually won the office of Senate, one of the very first policies that he put in place was nonprofit organizations cannot use their platform, cannot use their voice, as it were, to publicly support or publicly not support one, or one party over the other. And so that has been the law uh, since 1954. So for the past 60-some-odd years, uh, that has been our country's law. Churches, nonprofits are not allowed to say, hey, I think you should vote for Barack Obama, or I think you should vote for Mitt Romney. That's not my position uh, to do that. It's not that the church cannot have opinions and ideas but what I want to begin to now walk through is how are our political ideas actually being formed? Um, so all of this to lead up to how does God want you and I to think about politics and politicians? How does God want you and I to engage in a political conversation? What does that look like? I'm going to share with you two things. Two things that I and walk through kind of the practical implications of these two things uh, of what Scripture teaches. If you are a Christian, this is our response. This is our relationship. This is our understanding of politics, politicians, and government. Number one would simply be this: God is the one who establishes kingdoms and those who sit on kings' thrones. Scripture makes clear, both Old and New Testament, that God is the one who's in charge. God is the one who casts the final ballot. God is the one who establishes kingdoms and governments. God is the one who establishes the rulers, presidents, or kings who actually sit in the position of power, the ones that are ruling and influencing the nations, influencing the world. 
That is God who is doing that. Scripture says in Daniel chapter 2, and this is Daniel. He is in exile, and he is in relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil, evil king. He is the one who killed hundreds of thousands of Israelites and captured them and led them to Babylon, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And this is Daniel's response to what has just taken place. In chapter 2, he said this. He said, Daniel speaking, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and all power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. Now, it might seem like that's an odd thing for someone to say who is in exile. People have been murdered. His city has been burned and destroyed to the ground. One attitude could be like, God, where are you? You've completely left. You've completely abandoned. You're completely out of control here. But Daniel's response was just simply, no, no, no. I'm not confused as God is in this. God is the one who establishes kings and rulers and the people who sit on the thrones. Paul says this in Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, this is where I'm going to challenge you to really think and think deeply about the implications of this truth, what Scripture teaches, that God is the one who establishes kings and kingdoms and rulers and thrones. One question could be, does this apply to all kingdoms? Or are we just talking about like the ones that are good kingdoms, like King Arthur, like just King Arthur's type of kingdom? Or are we talking about like all kingdoms, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini? Are we talking about like evil empires? If you would be faithful to say what scripture says, then you would say, absolutely, God, all kingdoms, all kingdoms have been established by God. He's in control. He's in charge of that. Clearly, the Old Testament, what I just read, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who was set up, established by God. Now, clearly the question is, how? Like, why would God ever allow in evil empire to rule and reign? Why would God allow an evil man who was just bent on murder, someone like Hitler? How could God possibly, how could he do that? You know what my answer to this one is? I have no idea. I have no idea what the plans and purposes of God are on a global scale. But what I do know, and the two things that I take great comfort and encouragement in is simply this. Number one would be, God is absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign over all things, at all times, over all, all places. There's no one or nothing outside of God's sovereign rule and reign. He is in complete control at all times, even when things from our perspective seem completely out of control. Can you imagine a world that was outside the sovereign rule and reign of God? Can you imagine a world that was void of of God's knowledge, God's power, God's presence? That would be an unlivable world. The second thing I learned is God is most concerned about his glory and his fame. 
So as we wrestle with tough questions of how could God allow evil in the world, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks when we talk about suffering. How could God allow evil dictators just to wreak so much disaster and destruction? My answer is what God is most concerned about, what Scripture clearly teaches, is He is most concerned about His glory and His fame. Now, if you really want to wrestle with something, and I challenge you to wrestle with this, is King uh, Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt. 400 years, the Egyptians ruled and reigned with an iron fist over God's people, the, the nation of Israel. After 400 years, God raised up somebody named Moses to deliver the people out of slavery, out of bondage. God sent Pharaoh, or God sent Moses to Pharaoh with messages of let my people go. And every time Pharaoh's heart was hardened, no, I'm going to do my thing. And in uh, Exodus chapter 9, we kind of the curtain is pulled back of what is happening here? What is happening that this evil man is ruling and reigning and just crushing the people of God? Exodus 9, verse 14 through 16. Moses, or this is God saying, uh, God speaking to Pharaoh. If you don't, I will send more plagues on you and your officials and your people. If you don't mean if you don't let my people go. Then you will know, then you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. By now, I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. Verse 16, but I have spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and spread my fame throughout the whole earth. You think you're a powerful ruler? If I just lift my finger, you'd be gone. But I've not chosen to do that because I have a greater plan and a greater purpose in place. And God's greater plan and purpose is always founded on his glory, his name, his renown. Meaning the people of the world would proclaim there is no one who is like our God. I'm not suggesting that this is easy. But what I am suggesting is scripture makes clear, number one, God is the one who establishes kings and kingdoms and thrones and those who sit on them. He is completely sovereign and he's most concerned with his glory and his fame. Now, a week from this coming Tuesday, you and I will have a unique opportunity. And I say unique because not everyone in our country or not everyone in the world has the opportunity that you and I have to cast a vote for the individual that we feel would best lead our country moving forward. Now, the way our political system is, is set up, you got two options. Next Tuesday, how will you vote? How will you approach how you actually cast your ballot? Now, I want to answer this question not telling you who to vote for, but I want to challenge you and encourage you of how to vote. What I mean by that is, and I do not want you to hear this as just a canned, over-spiritualized answer, but have you even prayed about it? Have you actually bended your knee and said, God, you are the one who establishes kingdoms. You are the one who establishes governments. You are the one who establishes those who sit on those thrones. You are sovereign. You are most concerned about your glory, fame, and renown. So God, 
how would you have me vote? This is not to say that you don't do your homework. Of course you do. You read, you research, you get to know the candidates, their, their names, their policies, their ideas, their ideologies, their values. Do that homework. Do it well. That's a way to honor God through that. But at the end of the day, the way that Kyle and I have decided how we will vote is not because we watched a bunch of CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, or because we read a bunch of political blogs on this guy will do this or this guy will do that. At the end of the day, how we have decided how we will vote is because we've bent the knee and said, God, you're in control. Align my heart with your heart. Too many people will, Christians, just Christians I'm picking on, will approach the ballot on Tuesday not having even asked God how they should vote. Because that is born from the idea, well, God's not really in this anyways, and I've done my homework, and I don't need God's ideas and opinions. I would urge you, spend time over the next eight days bending your knee and praying, God, I want my heart to be aligned with yours. What would you have me do? And be in complete obedience to what God would have you do. Now, is it possible that God could lead me one way to say, Michael, this is how I want you to cast your ballot come Tuesday? And is it possible that God could lead another God-fearing, God-obedient individual to cast their vote a different way? This might shock you, but yes, that's absolutely possible. Because God is not only trying to accomplish his purposes in America, God's not trying to only accomplish his purposes in our country, he's trying to accomplish his purposes within you as well. There is more happening than just an election. So is it possible God could lead one one way and the other? Absolutely, of course. But the question is, will you be led by God when you go to cast your vote? Because my conviction is that God is sovereign, he's the one who does this, he's the one who establishes, I want to know what God wants me to do, and I just want to do that. I've read, I've researched, I'm paying attention, I'm listening, but I'm listening first and foremost for the voice of God. Now, regardless of what happens next Tuesday, there's going to be an outcome, right? Well, hopefully there will be an outcome, and it won't take weeks to figure the outcome. But come next Tuesday, when you wake up Wednesday morning, in theory, there will be a winner. Now, what I want you to know is regardless of who wins this election, our mission does not change. My mission to love God and to love people does not change or is not impacted or influenced by who will sit in the office for the next four years. The mission of this church, and I would say the mission of Christian church, will not change because of who sits in the office and who does not. I like how uh, president of a seminary and theologian, Al Mohler, says this, the kingdom is not riding on whatever happens on election day, and the church's mission isn't going to change regardless of what happens on election day. I'm excited to see how God leads. I'm excited to see who God will raise up to continue or to new, sit on the throne as it were. But what I'm even more excited about is I'm excited about the mission of God being accomplished with me, through me, through us as a church. Because that's not going to change.
That's the first thing I would share with you, what Bible teaches about politics, politicians, and government. God's the one who establishes it all. Number two is this. The Bible reveals that Jesus is king. That's it. That's the game changer. Jesus is king. Jesus is absolutely Lord over everything. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been, I have been given all authority on he- in heaven and on earth. Where does all authority rest? In Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is king. Col- or Philippians says this, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody, every knee would bow. Why? Because Jesus is king. So my question is this. The Bible makes clear that Jesus is king. You and I, if you are a Christian, do not need to be confused about who your king is. His name is Jesus. Our question simply becomes, how does the king want us to live in this kingdom until he brings us into his kingdom? We are living in a small K kingdom. How does our capital K, Jesus King, want us to live in this kingdom until he brings us into his perfect kingdom? St. Augustine uh, was not shy as it related to politics. He was actually very pessimistic as it related to politics, but he said this, government is a necessary evil that is necessary because of evil. It's, in other words, the government serves a purpose. Let's not be confused about that. Can you imagine a world where there was no government? So he said, it's a necessary evil. Why? Well, because we live in a fallen, sinful, prideful, power-hungry, power-driven, violent world. Our government is not perfect. Our government has flaws. It has issues. I'm not suggesting it doesn't but it serves its purpose. Now, he went on and wrote great, two great books called The City of God and The City of Man. And as he's kind of explaining, there's one city. The city of God aligns its, its affections, its values with the things that God values. But the city of man aligns its affections and the things it values with the, the culture of man, as it were. Two totally different cities. If you are a Christian, you are a citizen of the city of God. And this is what uh, Augustine in his book, City of God, said. Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. We live in two cities, a dual citizenship, as it were. Uh, We may be citizens of the city of God, but how we live in the city of man, it actually matters to God. There are many who place their hope in the city of man, meaning there are many who are looking for value and significance and love and worth, looking for salvation in the city of man. That's why we put so much hope, so much stock in who rules and who reigns. 
But if you are a citizen of the city of God, our king is King Jesus. And our question is not so much who rules and reigns. Our question is, I know who rules and reigns. And how does my king want me to live in the city that I'm in right now until he comes and brings me to the city of God? And so I want to just answer that question. Because Jesus is king, I'm a citizen in his kingdom. How do we live as citizens of the city of God, but also citizens in the city of man? I'm going to share with you pretty quickly three, three things that I believe our king, meaning Jesus, has called us. This is how he would have us live. And clearly this is politically. Like how do we think, engage, relate as it relates uh, polit politics? Three ways. Number one, we are to pray for those in office. Our king, meaning Jesus, has said, I want you to pray for the rulers, for the officials that rule and reign in the city of man. First Timothy says this, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. And listen to what Paul says, ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, meaning lead them, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for the kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Isn't that amazing? Our king has called us to live peaceful, quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. And we get to that place as we pray for all people. Specifically, though, Paul says, we are to pray for the officers and the kings and the rulers that rule the land of the city of man. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand on this, but have you ever complained about a, pol a political figure? Have you ever grumbled about the president, the vice president, a governor, a senator, a congressman, or a woman? Like, have you ever complained about those that are in power ruling and reigning? Now, I'm going to guess, if you're at least honest, all of us would have to say, yeah, I've totally done that. I've absolutely done that, and I'm actually still currently doing that. Is it helping? Like, is it actually making a difference? Your complaints and your grumbling, is it actually doing anything to make any bit of difference in your world? And I would venture to say it's not. I would venture to say it's actually just hardening your heart. I would venture to say that it's probably beginning to harden the hearts of those that are around you and listening to you. Complaining and grumbling in the city of man as a citizen of the city of God is utterly not helpful. And it's not honoring to the king who has called us to pray for those who rule and reign. Now, I think for most people, what's the point of praying? Because it's just, it's not going to do anything. I would challenge you on two fronts. You've got to get a bigger view of who God is, uh, because God can do anything. And God uses the prayers of, of his people to continue to advance his purposes and his plans. And I would at least challenge you with one aspect of prayer. If you really don't believe that prayer can change the heart of a leader, I would redirect your attention back to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, as I told you, was an evil, wicked man. 
slaughtered, killed, devastated, destroyed. Do you think, bless you, that Daniel's response to this evil, wicked king, it should have been complaining and grumbling. But you know what he did? He prayed. He prayed that God would change this man's heart. And guess what happened? The heart that no one thought could ever change, well, would you know it? It changed. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about himself. Because he lifted himself up as a God in the city of man. And God said, no, you're no God. I will humble you. And he broke Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, faithfully praying for the rulers and the officials in the city of man. And would you know it? The ruler in the city of man named Nebuchadnezzar, heart is changed. It's an incredible scripture. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king. The king, all his acts, just and true, he is able to humble the proud. I would encourage you, if you have more of a complaining, grumbling spirit towards our president, towards any other elected official, would you just pray for them? Would you pray that God would bless them, that God would lead them, that God would just open his heart, his eyes to the things of God? Would you pray that God would be at work in this man's life? Would you pray that God would use this man to lead and to lead well, to lead faithfully? I have no idea if our current president knows who Jesus is, but if he doesn't, would you be willing to pray that he would meet Jesus and confess Jesus as king? and run his life as Jesus is king and lead our country? Would you pray that? That's not just a suggestion. If you are a citizen of the city of God and your king is King Jesus, your king has called you to pray for those who rule and reign in the city of man. Number two. So the first one is we're to pray. Number two, we are to respect and honor those who are in office. First Peter for the Lord's sake, respect all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. Uh, skip down to 14. Respect everyone and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king. Romans 13 verse 7 says this. Give respect and honor to those who are in authority. I think our attitude often as Christians is... Heck no. I'm not giving respect to someone who does unrespectable things. I'm not going to honor someone who does dishonorable things. I'm not going to respect a leader who leads and does X, Y, and Z. If you're a Christian, our, what Jesus has done for us is grace-based, not performance-based. We don't give respect. We don't give honor because they've done something to merit it. We give respect, we give honor, because that's what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus gave us himself, his love, his kindness, his mercy. Not because we merited it, not because we earned it, but because of his grace. 
Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we respect the evil that happens in our world. But as way of respecting those who are in office, those who are leading, what I'm essentially doing is I'm respecting the one and recognizing the one who's placed that individual in the position that they are in. I think a, a great example that I thought of this week as I was wrestling with, what do you, how do you respect someone who's doing evil? How do you honor someone who is just doing dishonorable things? Practically, what does that look like? King David, he wasn't king at the time, but God said, you will be king. But there was another king in front of him. His name was King Saul. King Saul was jealous and hated David and knew that David was being raised up. So what did Saul do? He's a good king, so he tries to kill David. Numerous times, King Saul was just hell-bent on killing David so he wouldn't rise to power. David is uniquely in a position to take Saul out. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 24. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my Lord, the king, he said to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord and king and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. He was right there. He could have ended the man's life who was trying to end his life and put himself in position uh, for, to, to rule the kingdom. And David, how could I do that? This is God's man. This is God's anointed chosen servant. How could I possibly do that to him? I so want our hearts to be that. How could I speak ill of a man that God has allowed to be in a, this position? I will not. I cannot. I will give respect, not because they've done respectable things. I will give honor, not because they've done honorable things. I will give respect and I will give honor because in so doing, I'm honoring my king and my king's name is Jesus. Number three, we are to submit to those in authority over us, namely government officials. I get no one likes the, the S word, the submit word. I, I'm fine, Michael, I'll pray. I'm fine, Michael, I kind of get the idea of respecting and honoring and doing so, we're doing that for our king. But you really are asking that we would submit ourselves to a government that from outward appearances does not submit to the authority of God. This is what scripture says in Titus. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what's good. They must not slander anyone, must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. I don't know if you've been in Titus recently, but I'm guess, going to guess that many haven't. And as you read Titus chapter 3, Paul says, Titus, you've got to remind the believers. You've got to remind the citizens of the city of God. You've got to remind them to submit to the government and its officers. And you have to keep in mind 
that this is coming in a government that was persecuting the citizens of the city of God to the point of death. And Paul says you've got to remind them. You've got to exhort them. You've got to challenge them to submit to the very people that are trying to crush them. Romans 13, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. The authorities are God's servants and that's the same word for deacons. They are God's deacons sent for your good. They are serving God in what they do. All right, let's ask a practical question. What does it practically look like to submit to our government? And clearly there are many ways one could answer this question, but I'm going to look to what Jesus did. Practically, what does it look like to submit to government? We give to the government what belongs to the government. We give to the government what belongs to the government. Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, and they were trying to get him to either pay homage to Caesar, or they were trying to get him uh, to uh, ignore the politics of the day and tell people it's okay not to pay taxes because it's Caesar and you're Jewish and you, don't, you shouldn't have to do that. This is the story picked up in Matthew 22. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives, you hypocrites, he said. If you ever think that Jesus is just like this soft-spoken, like white robe-wearing hippie, like Jesus knew their evil motives, you hypocrites. He was not afraid in to love people enough to challenge them to say, you are a complete hypocrite right now. What you're trying to do is trap me. I see through your trap. Why are you trying to trap me? Verse 19, here, show me a coin used for the tax. And when they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. I could say so much about those few verses right there, but just let me keep it simple. Do you believe that God owns everything? Everything. Or do you believe that God just owns certain things and like the government is like beyond his jurisdiction? Like God even has a separation of church and state. Like it's just God's over here and he doesn't have any influence or or power uh, over in this realm. What Jesus is trying to drive home, the fact is, God is the owner of everything. He owns everything. So by giving to Caesar what is Caesar, you're giving to God what is God's because God is the owner of all things. So to ever have the attitude of, well, I'm not going to give to the government, God is the owner of everything. A way that we, practically speaking, submit to our government is give to the government What belongs to the government? Now, let me ask you another question. Whose stamp is on you? Whose picture is on you? Whose image is on you? Because Jesus said, it's got Caesar's picture on it, so give to Caesar. But then he says, but give to God what is God's. Do you know what that means? We talked about this a few weeks ago. You, created by God, bear the image of God. The picture of God, the stamp of God, the image of God, Imago Dei, is on you. What Jesus is saying, you, give all of you to all of God. Why? Because his stamp is on you. And what belongs to God, give it to God. All of it to God. 
Justin Martyr, uh, I'll give you a hint by his nickname, it didn't end well for him, said this, everywhere we more readily than all men endeavor to pay those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. We worship only God, but in other things, we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men and praying that with your kingly power, you may be found to possess also sound judgment. You know what they did to Justin? They killed him. But that didn't change his posture or his position because I'm a citizen of the city of God and my king, King Jesus, has told me to give to God what is God's government it all belongs to God. I like in response, Michael Horton said this, Caesar always knew how to handle an insurrection. He was befuddled by a church that continued to pray for him even as he sent them to their deaths. I wonder if we as Christians might begin to befuddle those around us by the way we pray, by the way we respect, by the way we honor, by the way we submit. Now, I think some of you might be wondering, do I submit to the government in all things? And my quick answer would be no. If our government was ever asking you to go against a direct command of God, then I would not submit to that. I would not bend my knee as it were. And I think the best example of this uh, is back in the story of Daniel, who had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And King Nebuchadnezzar had not been broken by God yet, set up a 90-foot statue of gold and said, everyone in the world will bow down to this statue that I have created. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, heck no. I'm not bending my knee to any other God but the true and living God. And this is in um, uh, Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. If our government ever put me in a situation or a position where I would need to break a direct command of God, bend the knee as it were, I'd say no. I would be respectful. These men were respectful in the land of, in the land of Babylon. And they were raised up to positions of power and influence. But I still would not bend the knee. Now, what about conscience? What about matters of conscience? Should I submit on matters of conscience? And I would say this, is your conscience driven by your convenience or is your conscience driven by biblical values? Too many people say, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, that has nothing to do with scripture. It has, that would make it inconvenient for you or uncomfortable for you. In matters of conscience that are based on your convenience and comfort, you submit to the rulers and authorities. You might not like it. It might hurt. It might cost, but you submit. In matters of conscience that are consistent with Scripture. For example, if our government ever came to me and said, Michael, you're a pastor, and we are mandating, we are telling you that moving forward, you, will, you must, you have to 
perform same-sex marriages? I would say no. That goes against my conscience. That goes against what I believe Scripture teaches. I will not do it, and I will live with the consequences of being relieved from the pastorate. I would be okay with that. I will not submit to something that would go against conscience that's driven by Scripture. Now, if I was ever in a situation where I was a doctor, and someone came to me and said, Dr. Davis, it sounds really good, <laughs> MD, it's already, I'm halfway there. If someone ever came to me as a doctor and said, Dr. Davis, moving forward, you must perform abortions. By law, you have to do this. I'd say, no, I will not. That goes against the direct command of God. That goes against conscience that's driven by Scripture. I will not bend my knee to what's convenient for our culture. I would refuse. I would not submit. So yes, there are places, there are times where we do not submit. But you need to make sure that what you're saying you're not submitting to is not for your convenience and comfort factor. It's driven by commands of God and Scripture. God's in control. He's in absolute control. God, as citizens of the city of God, our king is King Jesus. My king has said, pray, respect, honor, and submit. And what my conviction is, I may not be able to change much in the culture that we live in from a political arena, but as a citizen of the city of God, if by praying for, if by honoring and respecting and submitting, someone in the city of man's heart might be changed because of that, then I will give myself to that. Because my heart is to see citizens of the city of God used by God to reach citizens of the city of man, that their hearts would know that Jesus is king. There will be a cost to me in that. There will be a cost to you in that. But I would ask you, would you be willing to pay it so that the city of God would grow, the city, the kingdom of God would grow? I might not change much on a political realm, but if hearts could be changed, then I'll give myself to that. Father God, I give thanks for this morning. I give thanks for a time like this where we can investigate Scripture. God, I give thanks that we can even have a platform and a place like this to gather and have challenging conversations and look at what Scripture has to say. Jesus, I give thanks that you are king. Jesus, I give thanks that you are a king who cared enough to come to sacrifice yourself so that we might know you, that our sins might be forgiven, and that we might have a new citizenship in the family of God, the kingdom of God, the city of God. God, it would be my prayer that for those who are citizens of the city of God, the kingdom of God, we would honor you, Jesus, as king.